Hey, family. Today, I'm talking with Dr. James Deutsch of the Providence Medical Group. Providence Medical Group is an emergency healthcare provider system in Southern California. Here are the cities they cover, Torrance, Gardena, Hermosa Beach, and Palos Verdes Estates. So this is a pretty large community that he's giving service to. This community and his service includes provisions for firefighters, for police officers, and other city employees, as well as the general population. Dr. Deutsch has done so much in his career that is impacting the way he's able to deliver healthcare today. While he talks with us, he's also going to be sharing with us stories that are from his life that are absolutely amazing. So I want you to really listen to him. And regardless of where you are on COVID, his perspective is going to be pretty interesting for you and teaching for many of you. Enjoy my conversation with him now. Doctor, I've been waiting for this conversation. I'm so happy to have you here. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation as well, Janice. Oh, yes. And you know what? We got to dive into it. I mean, there's so much to talk about. The thing is, um, it's a very busy time today for doctors and all healthcare practitioners and where it's actually fail to communicate the depth of this, but we're certainly going to ask you to help us and to get us there a little bit. Um, I mean, I think about all the rushed emergency rooms, a population that was even sickening prior to COVID and growing in that. Uh, now they're caught in the midst of it. Immigration has been a source of healthcare workers, and now that's being cut in different ways uh, around rising global needs as well. Um, politics is playing into care delivery and the vaccination. We need you to break this all down for us. Um, can we start by just having a conversation about where we were pre-COVID in terms of how our health looked as a nation and as, as the world? Our listeners are all over the world right now. I think that our health system was challenged even before COVID. And uh, once COVID hit, all the weaknesses became very obvious. Um, I think our public health system uh, was surprised at the magnitude of this infection and it came on so quickly that they've been trying to play catch up ever since this all started. What has absolutely surprised me has been the difficulty in communicating the facts, the clean, pure facts about what's going on. And there is so much misinformation out there that the average person can't possibly figure it all out and understand what's real and what's not. And what has surprised me in the office is people aren't asking us about the vaccine. They're not getting our opinion. By the time they come to see us, they've already made up their mind. And what we're having to do is to try to change their understanding, change their beliefs, and to talk them out of a decision that they've already made by the time they come to our office. That's the frustration. When we see someone who's there for something totally unrelated and we bring up the vaccine in the unvaccinated, their answer is, oh, I've decided that I'm not having it. And it, they don't even give us the opportunity 
to give them facts that actually address their questions. The fear factor is unbelievable. We have never seen patients so afraid, so anxious, so frustrated because they don't seem to be able to grasp what's going on. Well, doctor, what is, and I know you don't make decisions for your patients. I'm thrilled that you're encouraging them to ask questions so that you can give them information to be better informed. What is the science about COVID? This was a brand new virus with a completely different method, mechanism of action, completely different transmission that we were not ready to address and it didn't give us time to address. How is it uh, uh, transmitted? Initially, the thought was that it's only transmitted from surfaces and not transmitted through the air. Then it became obvious that it is transmitted through the air. So each time we learned something new, we had to go back and change something that we, the medical community, the public health, uh, said, and pretty soon people stopped believing us because we kept changing the story. Well, the reason we kept changing the story is because the information we were learning about this virus kept changing. And it has been an absolute miracle what was accomplished in less than a year in coming up with the vaccine. This vaccine technology has been around for 20 years waiting for this event to occur. And when it did, it was all hands on deck, unlimited funds available to make it happen. The reason this never happened before is because we had a technology that created very effective vaccines. Every year we had a new flu vaccine that worked 50 to 60% effective. And we thought that that was adequate. So there was no reason to spend money and to develop this new technology. But all of a sudden, we needed to change. We made that change. We developed this incredible vaccine, which is based on a technology where your body is not exposed to the virus itself. All previous vaccines used either parts of the virus, dead virus, or somehow changed virus to fool your immune system into making antibodies. And when you were exposed to the real thing, you were ready to attack it. This vaccine is based on what's called RNA technology, messenger RNA. Messenger RNA are amino acids that stimulate your body's muscle cells to make proteins. And so this vaccine tells your muscles where it is injected to make the protein that is on the surface of this virus. And then within 48 hours, that messenger RNA is destroyed, disappears, your body is now ready to fight this virus. Messenger RNA has absolutely nothing to do with your DNA. And so that was one of the first misconceptions. Oh my God, you're injecting me with foreign DNA. You're going to change my DNA. I'm going to become infertile. I'm going to have abnormal children. I'm not going to be able to have children. There is no relationship whatsoever between RNA and DNA other than two out of the three letters are the same. It's like saying, I'm allergic to apple juice, therefore I can't drink orange juice. The ultimate apples versus oranges. So if we could just get past that first step, 
this is not going to make you infertile. In fact, we are trying to encourage pregnant women to please, please, please get vaccinated because your chances of survival are so much less with this virus than someone who is not pregnant. The deaths are just tragic. So then now we are into the phase we have encouraged and succeeded in getting approximately 55% to 60% of the public vaccinated. But it's that other 35% we have to get vaccinated. And that goes back to initially we thought we could have herd immunity. If only we could get 60 to 70% of people vaccinated, the virus won't have anywhere to go. Well, unfortunately, while all this has been going on, the virus has been mutating and it mutated and it's now much more contagious. So that 25 or 30% leeway that we thought we have, we no longer have. Because as long as there's one per, uh, two people out there, with one with the virus, one without the virus, they will find each other. And we need to get everyone we can vaccinated. The theory now is we have to get over 90% vaccinated. Just like with measles, measles is the, one of the most contagious viruses. And unless a community is 95% vaccinated, you get outbreaks of measles. And we're in the same place with this virus. And the vaccine is absolutely safe. The results are fantastic. As I said, we're happy with flu vi vaccines that give us 50 to 60% protection. This gives us over 90. Over 90% 90 of people who are vaccinated do not get serious illness. What they get, they might get a mild illness. And people say, well, then it's not effective. I still get infected. Well, the only way that we could make it so that you don't get infected is if you, we put you in a bubble. As long as you're out there, if you've been vaccinated and you breathe in air that has the virus in it and you happen to get tested the next day, that virus is in your nostrils, we test you, you're infected. That doesn't mean that you're sick. Is that what a false positive is? It's no, it is, it is positive. You do have the virus in your nasal passages, but it's not causing illness. False positive is, if a, is a, if a test says you have something when you don't have it, because there are um, something that's similar to what you're testing for, or the test, you know, nothing is 100%. Sometimes you get false positives, which means you don't have the disease that the test says you have. But That's why the doctors have you come back and test again if they think that your dynamic suggests you shouldn't have had it. Absolutely. Test again, reevaluate, take more history, do more examinations. That's why and, it's and, called practice. We're not near being perfect. <laughs> and uh, as with all tests, I mean, I remember... Uh, and that this is dating myself, but I remember when I was of an age where birth control was being debated and the safety of using birth control. And I remember one of the big questions was how effective is it? And I forget how many 90s it was, whether it was 92 or 99% effective. Uh, but I remember people fixating on that one, two, whatever percent. And so now it's not a viable uh, solution for women. Exactly. Unfortunately, very few, if any, things out there are 100%. And absolutely, I will admit the vaccine is not 100%. 100%.
one of the parts of this that people don't focus on or don't realize is there's a human element involved. The oh. vaccine comes in a vial and there are six doses or 10 doses. Someone has to take a needle and a syringe put in there and drop the appropriate amount. Maybe they don't drop quite the right amount. So you get injected and you don't develop the immunity that you should have. Things can happen that is totally unrelated to the quality of the vaccine that in your case, it might not work. You may have a minor immune deficiency that has never manifested itself. Maybe you're one of those people, every time there's a cold going around, you catch it. Mm -hmm. Get over it and you ignore it. And you've never had a large volume of complicated tests to see if there's a minor immune deficiency in your system. But with this, if you've got that deficiency, maybe you don't develop the antibodies the way you should have. And unfortunately, if you catch the virus, you get seriously ill. But it's still a minor, tiny percentage. Recently, one of the hospitals had 51 COVID cases in the hospital. Of that 51, one person was vaccinated. So there you go. That's what the odds are of you getting in so sick that you're in a hospital, one out of 51. I would take those odds any day. Well, yeah. let's explore some facets of uh, COVID in, uh, in, in separate so you can communicate what you see as the real facts about the virus, the vaccine, masks, social distancing, and vaccine mandates, as well as employer responsibilities and how we get through this as quickly as possible. Now, you've given us the science on it. And perhaps you uh, and you shared a little bit of data as an example, but let's talk to some other aspects. Let's talk about the vaccine itself. Yes. Okay. Um, what do you want? You've shared with us, you know, the difference between RNA and DNA. Um, when we talk about vaccination, sometimes it's bigger than that for people because they bring other thoughts into it. Some of them are fears about the science or the truth and the com communication of the science. Others may be religious. How, how is the American medical practice? We're talking to people across the globe, but most people around the world value the American medical uh, system. How is the American medical community looking at this when we do have all of these areas in people's lives that they consider from and they choose not to take the vaccine? Is there, is there something in there that, it, that needs to be communicated? That is the crux of the problem, is how do we communicate to the, all these people who have had this misinformation, who have these questions, that the vaccine is safe, the vaccine is effective, the vaccine saves your life. You may still get sick, but it, it's unlikely that you will get hospitalized. And again, the emphasis is always being put on the negative. Recently, we've had this surge of giving people boosters who are over the age of 65 who have immune deficiencies. And now the anti-vaxxers are taking that as proof that the vaccine doesn't work. Absolutely, completely incorrect. The vaccine works exactly as we had hoped. It doesn't last forever. 
flu vaccine only lasts one season because the virus keeps changing. The COVID virus is also changing. Mm. Only the greatest changed viruses make it into the news media. So we had, quote, the Delta variant. But before we got to the Delta variant, there were eight or 10 other minor variations in the virus that weren't important enough for us to bring up. But as the virus changes at some point, the vaccine becomes less effective and it still works, but we have to monitor that. And so if you have a population of people that is significant in size enough, and I hear you even one plus and one minus is gonna end up in contact with each other. If you have enough people who are not vaccinated and the um, vaccine, I mean, the, uh, the virus can keep mutating, can it get to a place now where the vaccinations that we have, those of us who are vaccinated, that it can become uh, not, not protection from those of us who are not vaccinated? You have just hit on the biggest tragedy of what not having people getting vaccinated can lead to. And that is the unvaccinated are the host for this virus where the virus can go replicate and mutate. And sooner or later, it can get to a point where first, your body's immune system won't be effective. The, the vaccine was developed to attack the crown on this virus, to attack an essential part of the virus that helped attach itself to your body. So it's unlikely that the virus will ever mutate to the point where the vaccine doesn't work at all. So okay. it will continue to work unless this virus becomes something to totally new. Your own body's immune system may attack a different part of the virus that is defective now, but six months from now, that part of the virus may no longer exist. So the immunity you develop by being infected may no longer be effective. Wow. So in all cases, we are urging everyone, even people who have had the virus, to get vaccinated. It's your best protection. And, and if we can get everybody vaccinated so this virus has nowhere to go to replicate, then we win the battle. Because until we do, it's out there. And a virus replicates millions of times in everybody's body, billions of times. And every time it replicates, you have a chance that something will change. You know, it's just like puppies look similar to the mother, but they're slightly different. Well, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as the differences happen to this virus, majority of the time, uh, major change causes the virus to die off. But every once in a while, something will happen where the virus, and that's how the Delta variant came. The Delta variant came up with some change that made it more contagious, either it became stickier. So when you breathe it in, it sticks to your nasal passages rather than you breathe it out. Or it became stronger so it can hold on when you breathe out. I don't know exactly, and I don't know if anybody knows exactly what the Delta change effect had on the virus. All we know is all of a sudden it became much more contagious. And the fear is that not only does it become more contagious, 
but it becomes, uh, causes more fatality. And there's a fine line there. If it kills the host too fast, then it can't replicate. So if you get sick and it lasts two weeks in your system and majority of people get well, but the occasional person dies, well, that's how it is right now. What if it becomes stronger so that it takes two to three weeks to kill you? During that time, you spread it and that's the danger and that's the fear. And that's why public health people are up at night because the worry is as long as this continues to replicate, that danger is out there. And if we can only persuade people, just get vaccinated, it can't do you any harm. Look at the numbers, we've vaccinated over 200 million people and there have been no definite documented cases of somebody dying from the vaccine. We don't have the allergy problem, it's not made in eggs. They don't use any foreign materials in there other than a lipid protein, which is a, a lipid envelope, which is basically fat that they enclose the RNA in. So we have no risk with this vaccine. The only risk is if you don't take it. What about masking, doctor? There's also conversation and debate on masking. Uh, who does it help? Is it helpful if you're not practicing hygiene with the mask, you might as well not wear it. Clean us up on this. Janice, how can this even be an argument is what amazes us in the medical community. Doctors have been wearing masks for a hundred years. When the germ theory of disease first developed in the early 1900s, doctors started wearing masks in surgery, not to protect themselves, to protect the patient. The patient is the vulnerable entity when you're doing surgery. And so we wear masks for six hours, eight hours, 12 hours. What we're doing is we're slowing, we're preventing the spread of virus or bacteria, whatever is in our breath into the room. You put a mask on and it doesn't have that forward propulsion that it needs to be in the air. So, so does my wearing, the, so, so let's say I'm out and I put on a mask. If I come around somebody who has COVID then to keep it very simple for everybody, I'm yes. protecting my breath from them. Is their breath protected by my mask for me or will I still suck in their particles even with my mask on? Because people are asking this question and they're not all people who are, you know, uninformed. The number one thing that the mask does is protect others when you're wearing the mask, but it also helps to protect you. The better the quality of the mask, the better the seal, the more it protects you. But unless you wear a full N95, which completely seals and is tight and it's held on by two bands around, you are not, I will not say that you're 100 because you're not 100% protected. It improves your protection, because even if you breathe in some virus particles, you won't get as many as you would if you didn't have the mask on. So it helps. It's not 100%. It's maybe improves your chances by 25%. But wearing it improves or reduces you spreading the virus by 50%. So if we all do our part, those percentages keep going down. If you social distance by six feet, that adds another 
25%, 50%. That six foot number is an arbitrary number. Somebody decided that this virus is heavy enough that it'll tra transfer in the air, maybe up to six feet. Well, if you've got a, a wind blowing, it'll just blow it away. If you're in a small room and you have a large virus load and you breathe out, maybe it'll travel even more than six feet. But again, it's quantitative. We add all this together and pretty soon you're up to 90% protection or 95. Or if you've had the vaccine, you're starting at 90 to 95. And then your protection is almost 100. It, it, it's all. But this whole idea of uh, masks causing you to breathe carbon dioxide or the mask causing you to breathe bacteria back into your system, that bacteria is already in your system. Breathing it back in is not going to make any difference. And you are not getting hypoxic. If you were running a marathon and wearing it and you need massive quantities of air, yes, that mask would slow that down. But it, for the average person in their average daily activities, it has absolutely no negative effect whatsoever. Well, you said doctors and uh, healthcare professionals have been, other healthcare professionals have been wearing masks for years because they discovered something to that. Um, what about, you, you, you mentioned social distancing. What about um, where social distancing really matters and, 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 and helps? Uh, people are flying on planes more now. People want to get into restaurants, not just sit outside of them. Uh, big events, sports and athletic events, music arenas, theater. All of us are yearning to have some feeling of socialization. How should we apply some practical thought about distancing for ourselves? Because even the even regardless of whether you are pro-vaccination or anti-vaccination, I think people are getting with the idea around distancing as you know something that's important. Right. So let me tell you an example of how incredibly contagious this virus is. Last winter, with the mitigations that we did before we had the vaccine, by wearing a mask, by social distancing, by avoiding theaters and sporting events and communities and bars and restaurants, we had no flu. There was no flu last year. I worked in a flu season. And I asked the other doctors in the urgent care center, how many flus did you see today? I haven't seen a flu since I, I can't remember. I asked the nurses, how many positive tests have you had? I can't remember the last time I had a positive test. So those uh, mitigation efforts were effective to completely stop the spread of the flu. And yet we had 700,000 lives lost in this country over the past year and a half from this virus. So it is so incredibly contagious. And that's why when you ask, how are we going to, I think what you're asking, when are we gonna get back to normal? When can we just go to a movie? When can we just go to a bar? When can we just get together with strangers and not feel like, oh, we have to keep our distance? When we all get vaccinated. It all comes back to when we all get vaccinated. Airlines are trying everything they can to help mitigate this having people wear masks. But quite honestly, wearing a mask on an airplane for a five-hour flight and having somebody sitting 12 inches away from you who is also wearing a mask helps. But I hate to say this because I know you travel a lot, Javis. 
I think that that is one of the super spreader areas that we have to address. And I'm hoping with the positive response to mask mandates or to vaccine mandates that the airlines will be, uh, that the government will mandate that all people flying need to be vaccinated. Well, I was going to ask you about mandates because you are correct. Prior to COVID, I was in the air and traveling about three weeks out of the month. And so, you know, there's been a great impact to myself, but I do believe that when we talk about community health, that's the one place where every single person gets to impact the outcome. And we're coming from different places on how we see that. What about vaccine mandates, doctor? Well, here again, this is a whole completely new, unanticipated, totally unexpected response to asking people to get vaccinated. People get tetanus vaccine, they get measles vaccine, they get mumps vaccine, they get polio vaccine. There is never this kind of resistance, this kind of pushback, this kind of it's my body, I make a decision about it. Public health's responsibility is to protect the public, but you need the public's acceptance and the public's cooperation. It's no different than driving drunk. Your body, you want to put alcohol in it and go for a drive? No, we don't want you to do that because you're going to kill somebody. So why is that any different than the government saying, if you want to go out in public, then you need to get vaccinated so you don't kill that person you're sitting next to in a restaurant. What's the difference? The vaccine is absolutely safe. There is no reason not to have it. And if you want to be part of this society, you need to do your part. It's your responsibility. It's not your freedom to not take it. It's your responsibility to take it. If you don't want the vaccine, that's fine. Go home, lock your door, watch the news, and when this is over, come out. Doctor, when, when we talk about uh, vaccine mandates, and that ties us into something that both you and I are engaged in, which is employer relationships. Yes. Yes. So how do we look at the employer responsibilities? And I know in your field, it's a little different because I know the healthcare field is giving as employers some mandates to their employees or showing responsibilities in ways that may be different from employers who don't work directly in the healthcare field. Can you talk about employer responsibilities? We have an, uh, a government agency called Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Their job is to make sure- That's what we call OSHA. OSHA. Their job is to make sure that an employee is safe when he goes to work, that it's the employer's responsibility to provide a safe environment for that employee to work. Let me give you an example. Our organization has home health and hospice nurses. OSHA mandates that before home health and hospice nurses can go out in the public. I have to do a pre-employment examination on them to, to validate that they have no communicable diseases and they have no immune deficiencies. 
No communicable diseases means no measles, no mumps, no rubella, no chicken pox, no hepatitis B, and no COVID. If they have any of those, they don't get to go out in public. And then also that they don't have an immune deficiency, that they're not putting their lives at risk. So how is that any different from the government mandating that it's the employer's responsibility to make sure that that employee who comes to work is coming to a safe environment, that when he sits down in a room where there are four or five other employees, that one of those other employees is not unvaccinated and therefore in a position to kill him. You know, we, we try to be so gentle with our words. We don't want to infect somebody or we don't want this. Let's put it in the words that what we're talking about is, we don't want one employee killing another employee. That's what this comes down to. We don't allow employees to bring guns to work because we don't want them shooting each other. Well, we also don't want them bringing COVID to work because they'll kill each other. So how can this be something that is against personal liberty? You want to go to work? You want to come work here? You have to do your part to make this place safe so other employees can come here. If you work by yourself, you don't need COVID. You can bring a gun with you. You can sit in the corner and drink alcohol. But if you work in a position where there are other people, where people are exposed to the behavior that you manifest, then you have to do your part to make it safe for everybody. We drug test people. We alcohol test people. We test their vision. We test their hearing to make sure that an environment is safe. And right now we've got a virus that can kill you. And people are objecting to this. How? Why? All we want to do is make it safe for you at work. Well, doctor, I, I do have to ask you this question because you lead to it in your conversation. Um, while we understand that there are different places that mandate and non-mandate can occur around this vaccine, uh, and we're talking globally, we're not just talking about the US. Do you think though, that for those who choose this vaccine, that healthcare professionals will have us take it every year? I know that's a bit of a crystal ball thing because it also requires you to think about the pandemic and how it's gonna change, um, how it's gonna change lives, you know, going forward. Will it, I heard someone the other day, and the, you talk about talking about really plain speak, uh, they verged on crude, crude doctor where they said, eventually people will die and then we'll all get better. Um, I'm not asking that question. That's the answer. But it may be that instead of getting a flu shot every year, you get a flu slash COVID shot every year. It may very well be. And if it is, if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. We don't know. This has only been around for a year and a half. Look at back at 1918, 1919, uh, the pandemic. It went around the world twice. It took two and a half years and then it disappeared. Yeah. So it, that could happen. Or you look at the flu. It goes around the world every year and it keeps coming back. And in spite yeah. of the fact that we're vaccinating billions of people every year with the flu, it still keeps coming back. But we've got a treatment. We've got a cure. It's not killing people. It well, kills in the U.S. between 25 and 75,000 people per year. 
which is a huge number, but compare that to 700,000, which we have so far. So we can't protect everybody from everything, but we can protect most people from most things. And if we get the cooperation of the public, we can protect even more people from even more things. In your theory of if everybody got vaccinated, let me just ask you this before we progress our conversation. If everyone got vaccinated, would the COVID virus die? Absolutely, it would be gone. It would be gone. A hundred percent, you believe that? I believe that a hundred percent if we got it done before it has a chance to mutate to a point where the vaccine is no longer effective. So and we that, don't have- And that includes vaccinated children. That's going to be the next battle is they are now approving it for five ages, five to 12. And at Pfizer, at Pfizer. It has not been approved, but it's close. Yes, but Pfizer, Pfizer suggests. I believe Pfizer, Pfizer Moderna, yes. Okay, so which the current me, pandemic, I'm sorry, go ahead, please. Which brings me to something I just have to say, because it's so close to my heart. 200 children die in this country every day right now from COVID. I can't even imagine the tragedy that those parents feel and those grandparents feel and the one and those parents who are not vaccinated who bring it home and give it to their children. How do they get up in the morning and look in the mirror and realize they just killed their child? And all they have to do is get vaccinated, Janice, and it'll stop. How do they get up in the morning? I have a three and a half year old and a six year old grandchild. They are the most precious thing in the world. I can't even imagine if I caused their harm, how I I don't know how you deal with that. How are these parents dealing with that? And then they go to the um, PTA meetings yelling and screaming uh, that they don't want their children wearing masks. How is this happening in our society? What has gone wrong? What's happened to people? I don't know who they're listening to, but they're not listening to us. 95% of doctors are vaccinated. Every doctor out there, well, you can't, again, there's no 100%. There are some doctors out there with opinions that no one else supports who are against vaccines, who are against masks, but they're outliers. There's an outlier in everything. There, but over 95% of doctors, every pediatrician that I know of, even the ones who are skeptical about doing the measles, bumps vaccine in highly vaccinated communities are pro-COVID. The children die just like the adults die. So it's a smaller percentage. So what? So what, what is it, instead of it being 0.2%, if it's 0.1%, then it's okay for those children to die? because you will not listen to the facts, because you listen to these uh, radio hosts who are yelling and screaming, don't get vaccinated, and they're getting vaccinated, who are saying don't get tested, and they get tested every day before they can sit in front of their screen. How can you be listening to these people? This week they're screaming about vaccines, last week they were screaming about Afghanistan, next week they're screaming about the debt consolidation. What gives them 
traction? What gives their opinion this value that people listen to? I don't understand it. Come talk to us. That's what we're there for. When you need cancer treatment, you come talk to us. If you need heart surgery, you come talk to us. If you need a broken bone fixed, come talk to us. And you're not going to come talk to us about a COVID vaccine that will prevent you from being killed. How is it, what happened to us? What happened to the people in our country? Doc, and doctor, this, 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 this is a global pandemic. It is. What's the rest of the world saying where you don't operate from? How are they behaving and what are they doing that's informative in this moment? Unfortunately, I don't have enough information to give you other than what I read in the news here, which is biased in both directions, you know, they're saying Brazil is the worst country in the world for vaccines and the highest number of deaths and percentage deaths. And I don't know if that's true. I don't know what's happening in Asia. Uh, one thing you do know about China is when they detect a case, they lock down a city. You have one positive and they lock down a city of a million people until uh, they contact trace and, and make sure that the uh, um, the virus isn't being propagated, isn't being passed on to other people. They simply lock the cities down. And well, one thing for sure, this current pandemic has brought a lot of change into our lives. We're expressing that in a lot of different ways. What do you think the future is going to look like? And when I say future, we're coming into the holiday season. I'm talking near future. I'm not asking you. You're in the business of science. You're not in the business of guessing. Uh, what do you think? Um, <laughs> right, right. You, you, you've got your degree on one hand and your crystal ball on the other. No, I'm not asking that. You know, I think we are very fortunate in California. I think the people in California have been much more responsive. We go to a uh, farmer's market every Saturday morning, and it, there are hundreds and hundreds of people there. They've been wearing masks for a year and a half, the, the vendors as well as all the customers. And when Newsom announced that we no longer need to wear masks outdoors, the following Saturday, I showed up and I didn't have a mask. I was one of the only people there. Mm -hmm. They were there last Saturday. Everybody's still wearing masks. And when you go to restaurants, people are wearing masks. You walk in, all the staff is masked. You sit down, you take your mask off. And I think that here in California, we're doing very well. I think the holidays are going to be as close to normal as we can get. I think people still need to be careful and people need to be honest and they need to communicate and they need to talk. And if someone is not vaccinated, they are not safe to be in my house. They need to put on a mask. I need to put on a mask. And the reason I need to put on a mask is because I want to reduce the chances of me getting that virus into my system and then going to visit my grandchildren who are not vaccinated. It doesn't mean that the vaccine's not working. It simply means I want that extra protection. And I think as long as we all do that and get the remaining people vaccinated, 
we'll be fine. The vaccine mandate kicked in in New York State and various other places this weekend as of October 1 for healthcare workers. So what is the news media leading with? 175 people fired at X hospital because they didn't get vaccinated. They didn't say that there were 35,000 employees of that hospital system and 175 didn't get vaccinated. That's fabulous. But don't tell me that the leading story should be 175 did not get vaccinated. Fine, they lost their job. They can go home, wait it out. Once this is over, they can go back to work. We can, we can mandate, but we can't force. But we can make it so that we protect as many people as we possibly can. And I think, like I said, in California, I think holidays are going to be fun. Do you think this pandemic on the large scale is going to have any impact or change in any way the healthcare inequality in the United States that many speak of? Do you see that there is healthcare inequality that will, and if so, will it be, will this pandemic impact it? I think there is no question there's inequality in delivery of healthcare. And I don't think there's any blame to be placed anywhere. I think it has just developed over the years through lack of access, lack of affordability, lack of availability. And I think we are seeing where those issues are and the healthcare system has to address that because I think that that's tragic that there are sections of our population who are not benefiting from the healthcare that they could be. So hopefully that has opened an area of problem that we, we need to solve. Just as I think, you know, I think the, uh, it has uh, affected how this whole um, supply chain is going to change. I mean, we were dependent on foreign countries for all our healthcare supplies. How could that be? How could we not be self-reliant? So hopefully that's going to change because we learned a lesson here. Yeah, I think I saw in the news this morning that um, there are uh, lots and, and it continues to, I mean, this is, this is not the first time I've seen it on the news that uh, we're looking at our ports and you've got ships and ships backed up by oh, weeks to deliver. ships in LA Harbor and normally there would be one or two. <laughs> waiting to waiting to unload waiting and to uh, unload. when they're waiting to unload that means they're not somewhere being refilled either uh, right. so i i do i do see that this has it just has had a domino effect across uh everyone but you know there's something else that's happened in uh in covid that i think merits some attention and i have to ask you have you in the medical profession, especially at the doctor level, seen a shift in how we view mental health in our society throughout this pandemic? Interesting that you asked that question. We are getting emails from our management people about our mental health because we realize wow. we are being stretched to the limit and we see it in our patients. We see the stress, we see the anxiety, we see the fear. And we have not spent the energy 
to educate people how to deal with this kind of stress. We've never gone through anything like this. There is no reason why people should know how to go through something like this. We need to educate them. They need to understand you need to continue to eat healthy. You need to continue to exercise. You need to watch your, your alcohol intake. You need to avoid, oh my God, the, the drug addiction and drug problems that are going in this country. We, there is so much out there that needs to be fixed, and we need to address them all. Well, you are approaching some good things that I really wanted to ask you as we shift from COVID. I think my last COVID question just now, though, is we don't know where we'll land on COVID. Do we know how it started? I don't think so. And that is uh, the again, level. you have the conspiracy theorists who are saying this was created in a lab. We don't know. It doesn't appear to be a lab manufactured virus. It appears to be a natural virus. And it really doesn't matter where it came from because unfortunately it's here and we get viruses entering the human chain constantly. And this has taught us that our system doesn't work, that we need to fix it. We need to be more vigilant. We need to be uh, more uh, attentive to what's going on and, and address it faster. And so I think our systems will change and we'll do a better job next time. Although the first pandemic in 1918, if you compare that with the pandemic today, not much changed. We had all this medicine, we had all this technology, and yet here we are, 700,000 dead. So it's a wake up call. And hopefully our politicians, hopefully our public health people, hopefully the people who make those decisions of how to prepare our country for the future will do the things that are necessary. But they need our support. Right now they're running 24 hours a day just trying to talk people into getting vaccinated. Well, my mother and dad are, uh, you know, I've often quoted them as I'm sure we all quote our parents uh, from time to time. One of the things my mom used to say is when somebody tells you what they don't know, you tend to trust a little bit more what they tell you that they do know. And so thank you for being prepared to, uh, to do that. Uh, let's move away from COVID though, uh, in a way, because, you know, we look at our own health while we're all focused on COVID, there are some other things we can focus on to assure that we come out of this healthy and that we uh, get to grow through this. Um, what are my 20 year olds, 20 somethings needing to do right now? I heard you just say, uh, you know, stay away from some of these things that are temptations. And I take that as good advice for all of us. But if we look at us as, let's say, a population of women and then men, women in their 20s, what do they need to do? And how's that different from what women in their 30s and then 40s and 50 above need to be thinking about in terms of our personal health? Um, and not just wearing the mask, washing our hands, and as you recommend, getting the jab. I don't think what you need to do changes with the decades. I think your body dictates what you're able to do. You know, when I was in my 20s, and I'm sure you too, I felt invincible. 
sleeping was optional? I still feel that. It's just that, <laughs> it's just that people like you suggest it's not the best way to think. <laughs> so I think the, the recommendation is still the same. Everything, everything in moderation. If you're going to exercise, exercise in moderation. Don't exercise until you develop tendonitis. Don't exercise until you get plantar fasciitis. Eat healthy. If you want to eat some delicious food that's not healthy, go ahead and do it, but only do it once in a while. Stop. When you're not hungry, don't eat. Whether you're thirsty or not, you need to drink water. Because as you get, as people get old, th there's one that changes. 20 year olds know when they're thirsty and they drink. 70 year olds don't know when they're thirsty and they don't drink. I never heard that before. Yes, people lose their sense of thirst as they get older. Wow. So there you have to have a different trigger, which is if you don't go to the bathroom every three or four hours, you're not drinking enough water because your body needs that water to filter through the kidneys to keep your system working. But healthy diet, regular exercise, maintaining a reasonable weight. That's one of the tragedies with the, again, we're back to COVID. For some bizarre reason, COVID is a killer of the obese. Mm. If you need any other reason than that, use that one. Try to maintain a reasonable weight. And a reasonable weight is five to 10 pounds around your ideal weight. I'm not saying you have to be 132 pounds if you're a five foot four inch female, but don't be 210 or 250. I mean, we have people in this country who are morbidly obese and we have them by the millions. Our fast food is so jammed with calories and people eat it so fast, they eat it while they drive home. By the time they get home, the food's all gone, so they eat some more when they get home. Don't eat because you're bored. Eat because you're hungry and stop the moment you're no longer hungry. Get plenty of rest. Your body needs to recharge. Like I said, when I was 20, I didn't think I needed any sleep, but my body told me how much sleep I needed and I got it. And as we get older, your body will tell you you need more sleep or you need less stress. Do what you enjoy and enjoy what you do. If you hate your job, find a different one or find a part of that job that you enjoy and channel your world so that that's what you have to do. I have loved what I do my entire life. When I got into medicine, there were parts of medicine I didn't like, and I went in it down a different road because I did not want to be doing things I don't like for the next 40 years. What is it you like most about practicing medicine? You have such joy in your demeanor around, uh, around your work, even with the passion you speak about, you know, the conditions that you have despaired to. What, what is it that you most like about practicing medicine? Janice, I look in the mirror and I say, I can't believe I get paid for doing this. Oh. What can be more rewarding than helping other people with their health? 
what in this world could I be doing that could make me feel better than people calling me and saying, I have this problem, I have that problem. Dr. Deutsch, what do you think I should do? It is so unbelievably gratifying to be able to help people to feel better. I can't believe I get paid for doing this. I would pay people to let me do this. And that's the bottom line. There are surgeons who love to operate. And so that's what they need to do. And then some of those surgeons end up in an office practice and they're hating life. Well, if you like to operate, then operate. Don't be in an office practice. And for me, it's the other way around. I want my patients conscious. You have so many uh, people who work underneath your system and you get to visit with so many di different uh, health issues. What are some of the most pressing ones that we see today? Let's talk beyond COVID. What are the pressing health issues we see today? And you know to go with it. Why is it happening and what do we do about it? I know you talked about obesity and you said, you know, obesity uh, ties to a lot of health issues. Some doctors talk about the gut and not having clean guts. I mean, where, where are the health issues we're seeing? Mental health. What are the ones you're seeing? I think in mental health, it's the anxiety and the stress and the fear. And a lot of people, it's a fear of the unknown. Yeah. As far as diseases are concerned, we have made unbelievable strides. We haven't conquered any, but we've found ways to treat them. We've, we have medications that improve people's lives. So we, people aren't dying of minor infections. Um, we are able to care for so many more cancers, heart disease. Uh, all the major diseases are under better control than they ever were. But I think the stress and anxiety in our lives and in the young people, I think a lot of that is social media. I think that feeds into their anxieties, feeds into their fears. They look at social media and they can't live up to what they're seeing there. Obviously it's not real, but to them it is. So I think just anxiety of getting by in this world right now is, very, very high. Wow, and the anxiety of getting by. Wow. Well, look, you know, we, we're gonna switch this up. I'm gonna play four for four with you, okay? All right. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna move you straight out, unless you choose to go there. I'm gonna move you straight out of the medical field and into the doctor, or no, let me take it away, into James, okay? First question, you get to invite anybody to dinner you wish, present or past. They can be transitioned or alive. No future people, doctor. Remember, we put the crystal ball away. Um, who's coming to dinner and why? Albert Einstein. I would love to spend an evening with Uncle Albert. His mind was so incredibly sharp and he understood things that to the rest of us are total confusion. 
And I would like to hear him explain how his mind was working, how he approached a problem. Because he said many times, failure is the road to success. And we don't realize that. We're all so busy trying to succeed that the thought of failure freezes us from doing the things we should be doing. I would love to hear it. Who's your second guest? You get wow. four. I need more? Yeah, you got five people at this table and you're oh, one I got, of them. Wow. Yeah, you're one of them. So who are the other three you're inviting? Well, that's a tough way. You should have told me ahead of time to think about this. We don't tell people ahead. <laughs> I have to say, Tiger Woods comes to mind because I so respect what he achieved in sports. I don't respect what he did in his personal life, but that's not why I'm saying I just his single-mindedness, and I would like to hear how and why he was able to focus and achieve what he achieved in an environment where he wasn't expected to succeed. So again, I think it goes back to what did it take for him to succeed? That's what I would like to hear. And I'm trying to think of which musician I would like because I am an incredible fan of music. I have no musical talents. I've never learned any musical instruments. And so it fascinates me how, how they are able to achieve and create the sounds that they create. Well, you're gonna love question number three, but now who else is at dinner? You still get two more people at dinner. I made Jagger's one of them. Okay, he's at dinner. He's at and, dinner. And, and we're gonna take for granted because you love his, mu his, uh, his music and right. his musicianship. And again, um, his success. Look at what he achieved. He's been, that group has been together for 50 years. Incredible. And who's your, who's your fourth guest? Wow. I need a different side of the equation here. I'm trying to think of what lady should be at that table. You would be awesome, but I don't think you're on the list. I, I'm not allowed. I'll be I, in the back. I'll, I'll, I, I'll be listening through the key. That's what I was afraid you would say. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher would have been fantastic in her day. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we can, I can still call on Ma Margaret Thatcher. Yes, you can invite her and okay. you, can fly, you can fly Margaret and Albert in on the same flight. There we go, yes. <laughs> and why would you like her? Another success story. She fought against everything that they threw at her as prime minister and she succeeded. 
She failed, she succeeded, and she continued to try. Thank you. Well, we're going two for four now. You're getting the gist of this. And the second one is books. What four books, understanding who our listeners are, what four books would you encourage them to read and why? That took a lot of thought. Um, I have come up with four books that I have found to be incredibly inspiring. I no longer read fiction. I think that history and biographies are so much more interesting. I don't need people making things up. Real life is a lot more exciting. So <laughs> the first one is called Endurance, about Ernest Shackleton's Voyage to Antarctica in the early 1900s by Alfred Lansing. They go into a world of complete unknown with no outside support and they survived. Mm -hmm. And it's just unbelievably inspiring story of what a human can endure and succeed in spite of all odds. So are you suggesting they didn't have social media? They didn't use a cell phone? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Absolutely no contact with the outside world. And their ship that they sailed to Antarctica gets stuck in the ice and destroyed. And they well, survive and returned to England. The story is they, incredible. What do they say? They live to tell about it. It. <laughs> they lived to tell about yes, it. Yes, that's they do live to tell about it. <laughs> What's your second book? A similar story that's much more in light vein called The Emerald Mile by Kevin Fedarko. It's a story of a group of guides on the Colorado River. In the late 1980s, there was an incredibly wet winter where there was the most water ever stored behind the dam that feeds the Colorado. And they had to open the dam to release the water, otherwise it would have overflown its banks. And these guides knew that they were going to release it. And so the water was gonna to rise to a level where they were going to be able to ride these 12 to 14 foot wooden boats through the most incredible rapids on the Colorado River. And it's the story, again, it's a story of success and how these guys managed to pull it off and not die. Whoa, whoa. I'm getting the theme. I'm getting the theme here. And as you said, you, you, real life is so much more interesting. What, what's your third one? Well, third one, I decided we need to get a little bit more serious. Winston Churchill, life lessons and the life lessons for success mm -hmm. by Jack Morin. Mm -hmm. And Winston Churchill was a man who spent his entire life in public service. And he went against a lot of conventional wisdom um, 
he did not look after his health the way he should have, but he overcame the uh, challenges that his medical problems posed for him, overcame all the battles with all his opposition and his view of the world and what every person's responsibility in that world is just, to me, so uh, uplifting. It's just a pleasure to read his thoughts. You know, as Americans, we tend to often be Anglophiles and um, my husband, Bernie, being from England, uh, would often say publicly, I'm very proud to say that Winston Churchill, and he didn't look after his health, but he looked after a country. But privately, he would say, and in so doing, I think he helped Europe and the world a lot. It could have been a lot different. Yes. Um, and, and so like you, he really admired Winston Churchill. Uh, what's your fourth book? Well, again, it's another one of accomplishment, of accomplishment of something that I was never able to do. Uh, I don't know if I would have ever really made that commitment. It's the story of Ed, well, the title of the book is No Shortcuts to the Top. It's a story of Ed Viesters, V-I-E-S-T-E-R-S, -E who was a mountain climber who climbs the 14 tallest mountains in the world. And again, I guess I am just fascinated by people who have such an incredible single-mindedness and commitment to succeed in spite of all odds that it makes me feel like any problems that present themselves are nothing. If, the, if this man could climb a 30,000 foot mountain in spite of the weather, in spite of uh, lack of food, in spite of all the other challenges. What can all this little stuff around us be? And it's just <laughs> a matter of get it done, just do it. And if you don't succeed, do it differently. And little stuff, huh? Little, little stuff, you know, Janice, I look back at my father and the inspiration that I got from him. I don't know if you know my history. We're from Hungary. We came out of Hungary in 1956 during the revolution. My father was minister of agriculture in Hungary and he wanted a better life for his children. And so we left, I was eight years old. He spoke no other language but Hungarian. He did not have a marketable skill we ended up in Canada and he started from nothing and he succeeded. He raised us, our three children. We all went to college. You went to medical school in Canada. I went to medical school in Toronto. My sister became a PhD. My brother has a BA. We all succeeded. And his motto was, you can do anything you put your mind to. What and was he like? to me. What was he like? He's still alive. He's what 98 he like? years old. I'm going to visit him next week. He was incredible, but, but there was no not succeeding. And your mom? My mother was just there to support him and us. Her entire life she spent taking care of her children. Wow. 
girl. Wow. That's when a success story in itself. When the uh, revolution started in Budapest, he came home and he said, we're leaving. And she said, okay, where are we going? And he said, I don't know. I'll pack a bag and there'll be a truck here tomorrow morning to pick us up. And we walked out the front door and left. Left our house, left all our belongings. We ended up in Austria. From Austria. How old were you when you left your home? I was eight years old. My so sister, you've got good memory. You've got I good memory. Janice, it is the most vivid memory I have. Those. He, he said, pack your bags, we're leaving. She asked, where are we going? And he said, I don't know. Right. And the next stop you made was Austria? The truck was down to the Hungarian border. We had a guide who took us across in the middle of the night. Next morning, we were in a refugee camp in Austria. The camp had 5,000 people in it that was built to house 1,000 soldiers. So it was absolute chaos. So my father had a cousin in Paris. He arranged for us to go to Paris. My father wanted to come to the United States, but once we got to Paris and went to the American embassy, we were told that any refugee who left his original country that he immigrated to, which was Austria, was no longer eligible to come to the US. And my father was devastated. But he said, all right, if we can't go to the US, where are we gonna go? Let's go to Canada. And we went and applied. We went to Canada, we grew up in he raised us in Canada. We, I grew up on a farm because he could not learn English well enough to work in a position where you had to speak. Mm -hmm. And uh, never failed. Failure was just meaning do something different. Ha have you been back? Have you been back to Hungary? I've been back many times. I have cousins there. I love them. They love me. It's an incredible reunion every time I go. We've kept in touch throughout the, my entire life. Wow, and I feel so silly asking you why you love medicine, why you love what you do. For God's sake, you answered me, what could be better than helping people with their health? And you've got a life and an experience that suggests just how vitally important that is. I don't know why, as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a doctor. The only thing I remember is at the age of six or seven, I climbed up on a table, fell backwards, cut my scalp open. My father took me to the doctor, doctor sewed it up. And from that point on, I wanted to be a doctor. I want to help people. That incident triggered it and it never varied. In high school, I, I was in high school right at the, the start of the computer age and that they were kind of recruiting people from our high school class to go to computer science, to go to actuarial science. And I went to all these uh, recruiting uh, seminars. And at the end of the day, I'd always walk out and go, nah, that doesn't sound interesting. I want to be a doctor. And it never changed. That, that, that's a beautiful, beautiful story. I am so grateful to you for sharing that. That is one tenth, one one hundredth of the story. When my father tells it, it takes six hours. What does he add that you don't tell? <laughs> <laughs> the voyage 
from getting to the border and meeting the guide to take us across the border is a two hour story. Mm. He give us a little bit. He thought he had a private guide lined up to take us across. By this time, the Russians were in Hungary and starting to protect the border. So you have to know where to go. We get there, there were a hundred people there that this guide is taking across, this mass of humanity. We started at around 10 o'clock in the evening and all, all these people are coming up to the guide and giving her, they, they all had flasks, liquor for the night to keep them warm. They're all giving the guide a drink. By midnight, the guide was so drunk that he had walked us in a complete circle. We were back to where we started from. Oh, and my God. father, having grown up in the country, realized this. And he started saying to people, he, he got us back to where we started. This is craziness. This isn't going to work. And everybody said, what do you know? You know, because he was well-dressed, handsome young man. And, mm -hmm. and so they didn't realize he's from the country and, and navigates in the dark and by the stars. And anyway, he went up to the guide. And by this time, when we left, we had burned all our papers because my father, by being in the government, was part of the Communist Party. And if you come out of the country and US or Canada or any other country back in 1956, if they knew you were a communist, they would never let you in. Mm -hmm. So he had no papers. We couldn't go back. And again, you asked me, do I remember? I remember standing next to him and he took the guide by the neck and said, if you don't get us across the border, I'm killing you right here. And we walked all night long with my father next to him with a hundred people following. And my father knew which way West was. So we just needed him to get us around bridges and, and rivers and this and that so that we could continue West. And at dawn, we got to the border just as the pillboxes were being uh, manned for the day by the Russians. My sister, who was three years old, my father carried all night long in his arms. She had been given a sleeping pill when we started. That was eight hours ago. Just as we got to the border, my sister started to cry. And people are going, shut that kid up, kill that child, kill that child. So my father took my sister and held his mouth over hers so we were crying when we heard. That's how we got across the border. So again, after this, after all that, this isn't a problem. Where That's why problem? you say stuff. That's why you refer to it as the little stuff. Yeah. Wow, doctor. Yeah. We're gonna have to. We're gonna have to talk the whole life out. <laughs> right now. Right now. We're going to go three for four. This one you're going to enjoy. All right. Even more than before. All right. Because I want to know what four artists are you listening to that you recommend and why? What four? Artists, mu music. We're talking music now. What are you listening to? Classic rock. I'm... And every time Deborah gets in the car, she changes the channel. I don't have an affiliation with today's artists. 
I just have never identified with the music. And so I'm stuck in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I love the Rolling Stones. I love the Beatles. I love Fleetwood Mac. And you want a fourth? Yes. Bruce Springsteen. Wow. You know, everybody you mentioned is so current to people today that it kind of jars me a little when you do say, oh, I'm stuck in the 70s. I mean, because these guys, their music is just eternal. So thank you. I, I'm sure a lot of people are already listening, but for the few who aren't, you gave them a great music list. Uh, <laughs> You gave them, you, they're going to be adding to their playlist. And doctor, we're going to go four for four here. Uh-oh. Yeah, here we are. Best advice you've ever been given that you can share with our family of listeners, why you're sharing it, and who gave you this advice? Well, number one is, as I said, my father. Mm -hmm. You can succeed at anything you want to do. Just have to work hard. That's pretty good advice. And if you don't succeed, then change what you're doing. But you will succeed eventually. That's even better advice. What's number two? I think it was given to me by a professor in one of our labs, which was you learn a lot more by listening than by talking. Excellent advice. He was trying to tell me something at the time. Excellent. Stuck. Excellent advice. My mom used to say, you got two ears and one mouth, not for nothing. <laughs> Same message. <laughs> Growing up, one of my mother's favorite sayings was, be nice to everybody. And I'd complain, you know, but he's being so mean, the professor is being so hard on me with this. Just be nice to everybody. Because that's how she lived her life. It didn't matter who it was. And the context of that, Janice, my mother survived Auschwitz. Wait a minute, please yeah. back me up. Can you share a little bit more about that? I visited Auschwitz. My mother survived Auschwitz at the age of 16. She never, ever spoke about it. She never, ever had a bad thing to say about anybody. 
And I could not understand how she could do that. That's why when you asked me about my mother and I said her entire life was devoted to taking care of us, that to her was her reward for surviving is being able to take care of her family. She got ripped from hers, didn't she, before you guys? Pardon? I said she, she was ripped from hers before yes. your dad. Yes. No, she was amazing. Oh my goodness. I don't know if I can come up with a fourth one. Well, look, you've laid it on us. <laughs> I, I can come up with a fourth one. Okay. If you're blessed enough to have a doctor, listen to the doctor. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been so awesome. From my heart to your home, thank you, doctor. Thank you, Janice. This has been an incredible experience. I hope some of the things I say will help somebody will save a life or hopefully save millions of lives because there are millions at stake right now.